as we continue this journey through the Gospel of John, some of us may find it surprising that here we are in John chapter 2, at the beginning not only of John's Gospel, but at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Because, as we often do on Palm Sunday, we proclaim, Hosanna, Hosanna, the Lord saves. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then immediately after the triumphant entry, immediately after the crowds are shouting out an acclamation and praise of this Messiah, Jesus cleanses the temple. Now, does cleanse the temple mean like the church cleanup that we just had? Think less Windex and more whip. He flips over the tables of the money changers because Israel had gotten to a place where they are perverting the Passover, where they are selling salvation. And it is truly disturbing, not only to Jesus, but disturbing to God. It's one of the few times where we see Jesus very angry. And that's why when we turn to John chapter 2, we'll see that this account happens much sooner than the last week of Jesus' life, than the first, quote-unquote, Palm Sunday, than the first triumphant entry, it would seem that Jesus had to cleanse the temple repeatedly. Now, both of these instances, both of these occurrences do have parallels at the triumphant entry of Jesus, where the crowds are coming and they're waving palm branches, when they're shouting Hosanna, when they're giving praise to God for this Messiah, they're throwing down their cloaks, they're paving the way for their king to sit on his throne. That's right after a miracle. That's right after Jesus resurrects Lazarus. You could understand why everyone's so excited. This king is also a miracle worker who has power even over death. You can imagine how they're thinking there will be no stopping any Israeli army because our king can raise any defeated soldier. But not only was that the triumphant entry following immediately a very popular miracle, but this in John 2 at the beginning of Jesus' ministry follows a couple other powerful moments in Jesus' life. It follows his baptism, where John the Baptist, the Baptist who was shaking the whole foundation of Israel, he was, as the Old Testament prophets say, paving the way for God's people and making straight paths for the Messiah. John the Baptist, who some thought was the Messiah, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, pointing at Jesus. So that's when all kinds of heads start turning Jesus' way. And then he gets baptized. And then the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. And then God audibly speaks to his son and says, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. But not only that, but then there's whispers of Jesus at a wedding in Cana. Jesus at a wedding in Cana where he turned the water into wine. So yeah, at this Passover feast where hundreds of thousands of Jews are assembling, there's a lot of talk. There's a lot of talk about this would-be Messiah, about this miracle worker, and there's probably a lot of thoughts saying, yeah, I'd like to follow Messiah that turns water into wine. That sounds like the kind of Savior I'm interested in. Both times, both times, 
Jesus performs a very popular miracle, and then what does he do? Oh, we would be tempted to ride that wave of popularity as far as we can, right? We wouldn't want to upset the apple cart, as we say. We wouldn't want to confront anybody in their problems, in their mess, in their sin. But right after two very, very powerful and popular miracles, Jesus comes into the temple and starts throwing over tables. He grabs a cord that's probably used to lead a sheep or lead a lamb or lead an oxen, and he uses that cord, that whip, to drive people out. Is this part of the reason that on Palm Sunday, the triumphant entry, you hear people shouting Hosanna, but then five days later, you hear them shouting crucify? Could it be that they had a misinterpretation of who Jesus is and why Jesus had come? Could it be that they had a Jesus of their own device, a Jesus of their own design, a Jesus that would never contradict them and a Jesus that would never, ever, ever tell them to change? And that's why even this Palm Sunday looking to Easter Sunday where there's going to be a whole lot of people gathering in churches, Jesus is going to be very popular over the next seven days, if you get my drift. It's very, very appropriate for us to come to this passage and be reminded of who God is and what God has said. I don't know if you've ever seen these billboards. There was someone that financed a billboard movement across the country where it was black billboards with one line, and then God was quoted as the one saying it. I don't know if you've seen these. Let's pull the first one up on the screen behind me. I like this one. It says, feeling lost, my book is your map, God. All right, that's pretty good. It's pretty good. On the highways, people need to know that. Next one. This one is good. Well, you did ask for a sign. (laughs) That's a literal sign. Next one, Josh. What part of thou shall not did you not understand God? Yes, that's a good one. Okay, next. Now, this is good, especially in Jersey, on the parkway, on the turnpike. (laughs) If you must curse, use your own name, please. (laughs) Sincerely, God. Next one builds upon that one. Keep using my name in vain, and I'll make rush hour even longer. (laughs) That's justice right there. And then the last one, which made me think of this passage God says, don't make me come down there. (laughs) Some of us have witnessed this. Some of us have gone through this. Friends, what happens when churches go bad? What happens when our worship is no longer all filled? It's just flat out awful. This isn't the first time that God's people had perverted true worship of Yahweh. In fact, in the Old Testament, Isaiah said this. Listen to this. This is God's word through the prophet Isaiah speaking about the worship services happening at that time. He said this, When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. God says, God says, listen to this, your new moons and your appointed feats, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. 
Wow. God forbid that our gatherings, our assemblies, our worship would ever be an affront to God, burdensome to God, wearisome to God, something that would lead God to say, my soul hates. Now, when we tend to think of worship, we tend to think of what? Well, how was the music today? Was the, was the sermon good? Was he good? Did he tell any stories? Was there, was there any good stories? Was, it, was, it, was everybody real nice and welcoming, right? Was there coffee? Was it Starbucks coffee? Okay, it was, in, it was Folgers. Okay, well, you know, we'll work on that. We tend to think of worship as these practical exterior expressions. Worship goes so much deeper than that. We tend to think of God and the response to God, our obedience to God, as just practical decisions, right? The Ten Commandments. Many of us are familiar with, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not covet. But it's the first two commandments that lay the foundation for the next eight. Not only the next eight, the first two commandments, friends, lay the foundation for every other commandment to follow that one. What are they? Worship the Lord God alone. Number two, do not worship any man-made created idol. You see, the issue has always been an issue of worship. Now, you might think to yourself, okay, well, worship's not about the song or about the hospitality or, you know, the parking or whatever. What is it about? It's about the glory of God, his renown, his fame, his holiness, taking lordship in your life. That's it. It's worship. Now, you might think, okay, well, worship is what happens in a church. Well, not really. Worship, think of the root word for worship, which is worth. Worship is whatever you attribute worth to, wherever you find your identity, wherever you find your security, wherever you find your hope and your reason for living, it might not be in a church. It could be in a bar. It could be in a sports stadium. It could be your workplace. It could be a person. That is what we worship. We all worship. You see, it's not a matter of, all right, I need to start worshiping God. No, the issue is I need to stop worshiping everything else. I need to worship, allow the glory of God, the holiness of God to reign in this sinner's heart. That's what true worship means. That's what true worship is. I'm going to share with you a story I heard about another church and uh, I don't know if you've ever been to our website, but, you know, there's some scriptures on there and our mission statement and all this. Well, on this church website, it quoted a scripture from Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Now, I want you to hear the verse, okay? I'm actually, I'm actually sorry. Luke chapter 4, okay? On the website, it had this verse. Ready? Everybody ready? This is, this is so interesting. The verse was this, Luke 4, 6 and 7. To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me. And I will give it to whom I will. If you will worship me, it will all be yours. So they put it on the website thinking, all right, if we worship God, he gives us all authority. He gives us all glory. What's the problem with that verse? It was the devil that said it. It was the devil trying to deceive and tempt Jesus and say, Jesus, if you worship me, Lucifer, the accuser, the liar, Satan, I'm going to give you the whole world. They could have just read the context a little bit. It's right there in the front page. That is a little bit of the spirit of what's going on here. God says, not only has he come down there, but he and the spirit and the power of the prophets 
is proclaiming the purity of worship. That in the end, our lives are not about us. In the end, this world doesn't revolve around you. In, this, in the end, life, peace, pleasure, and joy is not something that you can create, control, or conjure. And that's the best news we have ever heard. Let's look at uh, John chapter 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Verse 14. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take those things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Let's take a break right there. So here it is. It's the annual Passover. Now, what's so interesting here, not only in John's gospel, but in your whole Bible, is that the Passover was not regularly or very, very purely celebrated in Israel's past. You remember the Passover, how God delivered his people from tyranny, and he led this massive exodus to a place where they could worship him, that God's wrath passed over the people of God because of the lamb and the blood that was slain, covering their houses, covering their families. Remember that? There aren't too many instances in the Old Testament where God's people actually continue to practice that. So what's so fascinating about the arrival of Jesus Christ is that there was a revival going on. But it was not a biblical, Messiah-centered revival. It was a moral, religious revival that they were now, because they wanted to be free of the tyranny of Caesar, the dominion of Rome, they were going back to the Old Testament prophets. They were going back to the law, and they were trying to implement and instill these practices like Passover. But what's happening here is that they're still perverting God's perfect plan. How many of us know that there's two responses to worship? There's two responses to faith. One of them is religion. One of them is an external, superficial, me-centered, man-centered effort. Okay? The other one is, let's say, just use the word irreligion. Whereas one is about legalism, the other is about license and licentiousness. Irreligion says, well, I'm just going to eat, drink, because tomorrow we die, right? Jesus comes to bring not necessarily legalism or licentiousness, but liberty. They're seeing a moral revival here. And what happens when our hearts are not filled with the Spirit of God? when our hearts are not driven for the glory of God, naturally, idolatry will creep in. So envision this. It's the Passover. Jesus is literally going up. If you've ever been to Jerusalem in Israel, you literally ascend to the city. You go to Zion, God's holy hill, and then you celebrate the Passover. So the numbers are different depending on who you read. Josephus said that this number at Passover could get into the millions of worshipers. 
Envision this. The Passover is a continuing practice of sacrificing sheep, oxen, and of course lamb as a reminder of God's atoning sacrifice as he led them from Exodus or from Egypt into his promised land. Okay, so it is a huge, raucous, busy, exciting time. It's like Easter times a thousand, okay? Hundreds of thousands of people are descending upon or ascending to Jerusalem. And this is the scene. And now, as you can imagine, what has happened is if people require pigeons, if they require sheep, if they require a lamb, then all of a sudden, salvation became a business. Salvation became commerce. And people start thinking, all right, look at the millions of people coming to this temple. Let's just say, even say it was hundreds of thousands. How can I make money off of this? How can I extort people for their money because they need those animals to get right with God? Could you see why Jesus gets upset? Not only because people are selling salvation, but also because of the location where they're selling salvation. This happened in the court of the Gentiles, the court where the Gentiles from all the tribes and all the nations of the world would come and hear the Torah. They would come and hear about Yahweh. They would come and hear about this covenant that he made with his people, and they would learn and they would worship Yahweh. Instead of the lost coming to hear the good news, you have business and people selling salvation. Does this make us upset even now today? This is what launched the Reformation, by the way. 500 years ago, an Austinian monk named Martin Luther nailed 95 theses. Many of them were about a word called indulgences, where the church was raising money and promising if you give money towards the church, you're going to spend less time in purgatory. That ignited a global movement that we're still seeing the impact of today. This is very, very serious to God. You see, there's only one, only one that can purchase salvation. There is only one way to know true peace and freedom from sin. And that's through the costly blood, not just of a lamb, but the lamb of God. It's at this time and at this moment where Jesus sees all of this discord and yes, he starts turning over tables. He grabs a whip. But during this last Passover, during the first Palm Sunday, during his triumphant entry, the, flip, the script flips. Friends, I mean, think of it. As I mentioned earlier, the shouts of Hosanna turn into crucify, crucify. Instead of palm branches being waved on Sunday saying, Hosanna to the king, Jesus Christ has nails driven through his palm. Instead of people laying down cloaks to pave the way for Jesus to enter into the temple, now they are beating him. They are casting blame on him. They are lying about him. All of these different ways, including Jesus on Sunday using a whip to drive out all the merchants in the temple on Friday it would be Pontius Pilate's whip on his back. It was all prophesied. It was all foretold. 
Isaiah 53 said, by his wounds, his stripes, we will be healed. And Jesus knew this. You see, even at the first Passover, even at the beginning of his ministry, he's not only thinking about perhaps when he was dedicated as a baby, when his parents who were probably poor could only offer up turtle doves and pigeons. He's not only thinking about that. He's thinking about perhaps when he was a young boy, and you can read about it in Luke chapter 2, when he went into the temple and his parents couldn't find him. And when his parents came and finally found him, he said this as a young man. He says, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? And now here, at the beginning of his public ministry, the young boy who is about his father's business is now filled with righteous anger because they have turned his father's house into a business. You see, this is what happens. When we pervert true worship, it leads to true discord. So the question is, friends, who and what are we worshiping? Do we know the Jesus of Scripture? Do we know the true Jesus of history? Because while we're all called to have a personal relationship with Jesus, friends, listen, all eyes up here, ready? We don't all get our own personal Jesus. Get that? All of us have a personal relationship with Jesus, but we don't all get our own personal Jesus. There's one Christ. He's alive. He's risen. He's reigning. So if we try to make Jesus look like us, as someone once said, in the beginning, God made man in his image, and then man, being a gentleman, returned the favor. We might think we want a Jesus of our comfort level, a Jesus of our design, but in the end, friends, that Jesus cannot, that Jesus will not save you, will not satisfy you. If God's purpose is to make this life as comfortable as possible, don't be surprised, friends, listen, when you get very angry at God. If we only worship the Jesus of the triumphant entry and don't receive the Jesus crucified on the cross on Good Friday, don't be surprised when you've been sold a false bill of goods and you get very frustrated. I once heard somebody say that anger is what happens between expectations and reality. We are worshiping a Jesus that looks like us and looks like our culture. You're going to get angry. Oh, but if we look to the cross, if we look to the one who poured out his blood, the one who truly suffered, the one who was separated from the Father so we could be united with him forever, the one who died so that we could live, then all of a sudden our trials and our suffering, they make sense. Oh, yes, this world is broken. This world is false fallen. And God is in the business of making it all brand new. Jesus says this in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said it has taken 46 years to build this temple. So for those of us that are a little uh, frustrated with how long our building project is taking... We're just getting started. Verse 20. The Jews said it'd take 46 years to build this temple and it will raise up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. 
When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. What led to belief? It wasn't necessarily Jesus turning over the temple or the tables in the temple, but it was Jesus proclaiming that there's one greater than the temple. It wasn't the lambs that were sacrificed, but it was Jesus laying down his life as the Lamb of God to be sacrificed for our sins. But in the end, friends, this is why on Palm Sunday, we have one eye on Easter Sunday. Even on Good Friday, we remember the story does not end at that cross of Calvary, but just begins with the empty tomb. Jesus says, I will raise it up. He himself has power over death itself. I had the honor of officiating a funeral yesterday. A grandmother who was taken from us abruptly and tragically by a horrific car accident. What do you say? What do you, what do you look to the family and say? God's here to make your life comfortable? If you believe in God... Just don't focus on the cross or repentance or blood. No, focus on how he wants to give you your best life now. See, it doesn't work. It never has. It never will. Jesus has come to flip over those tables, not only in the temple, but in the temple in my heart. He's come to drive out all the merchants in my mind, to drive out all the false perceptions. But here's the good news. Even as I allow him to crucify all of that in my heart and in my mind, He has promised to raise me up. He has promised in the same way that he will raise up his life. All who trust and believe in him will also be raised on that last day. That's really good news. H.B. Charles put it like this, and this is how we'll close. Think of the Lamb of God. In the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, God clothed Adam and Eve and sacrificed a lamb so that they would be covered from their shame. God covers individuals. And then in the Exodus, God covers families where people put the blood of the lamb over their households and their families are forgiven. Not only individuals, not only families, but then in Leviticus, we are commanded to practice this lamb, this goat that's sacrificed to cover the blood of a nation. Oh, but not just individuals and not just families and not even just nations. John the Baptist said, here is Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. In the end, we have to do what the disciples did. Believe. Believe. You see, Christianity, my friends, makes a really lousy hobby. Believing means trusting. Believing means loving. Believing means King Jesus, I live not for my glory, but for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you, God, for your word, your word that continues, as Romans 12 says, to renew our minds, to shape our worship, to lift our gaze to heaven, to take our lives out of the pit and place them on the rock, and that rock is Jesus Christ. That rock is also the one who died on the cross. That rock is the one who was raised to life forevermore, that all who believe and trust in Jesus Christ 
He will raise them up on the last day. So friends, who and what are we worshiping? Friends, who and what are we believing in? Friends, the invitation this morning is to know true triumph. Not just triumph over some kind of political or economic or or, uh, geopolitical tyrants. But know, to know deliverance from the tyranny of sin. To know freedom. Freedom from the enemy's lies. And to know power. The power of Jesus' victory over death itself. Friends, let's rise to our feet together. In a spirit of prayer, let's rise and stand. If you'd like to believe in Jesus Christ, it is something the Holy Spirit supernaturally does in your hearts. But I'm going to give you a simple prayer of repentance to turn from sin, to turn from idols, to turn from any false counterfeit God and to return back to the one who loves you, the one who died for you, the one who's risen and reigning and interceding for you. If you want to know the Lord, surrender now. Pray this simple prayer with me. Heavenly Father, I've made many mistakes in this life. Forgive me. I want to know your mercy today. Fill me with your love. Fill me with your spirit. Today, I'm trusting you. Today, this Palm Sunday, I'm following my King Jesus Christ. We pray this in his holy name. Amen. If you prayed that and you could just sense, I mean, you just know it, right? You just know when the Holy Spirit's working. Something's going on. Let somebody know. Tell your friend who invited you. Tell one of the pastors, the deacons. Take home that Bible. That's our gift. But let somebody know. And we love to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. With that said, do we have our palm branches? All right, let's find them. Let's wave them, friends. Hosanna, Hosanna. Our God saves. Amen? Amen. John's Crossing is going to lead us in an old-fashioned hymn. That's got a lot of energy to it. So let's sing and give God all the glory. Amen.